Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 21, How Lisa C. Writes. Before we get started, I am so excited to announce the How Writers Write online reading series. There is now a huge gap in the live book event space now that the world has more or less shut down. How Writers Write were stepping in to help fill that void. We are scheduling as many readings as possible. These are live events where the author will read from their book, answer some questions, and then take questions from the audience. Yours truly is hosting most of these. So come and hear Amy Harmon, Lisa C., Zach Jordan, and so many others. You can ask that question you've always wanted to ask, maybe win a free signed book. All of this completely free to you. To sign up, attend www.howwriterswrite.com slash online reading. Online reading is all one word. Again, that's www.howwriterswrite.com slash online reading. First reading is with Amy Harmon on April 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You do not want to miss it. Okay, so this episode with Lisa C. is timeless. Lisa is such a wealth of knowledge, and she so graciously shared her lifetime of lessons about the writing life. I felt as if I could have spoke with Lisa for hours and hours. In fact, we stopped the recording only to restart it because the information she kept sharing was just too good not to capture. I want to say a very special thank you to Lisa for her time sharing so much with me. And now, without any more further ado, here is the interview with Lisa C. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I'm your host, Brian, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Lisa C. for the show. Lisa's new novel, The Island of Sea Women, is about the freediving women of South Korea's, I think it's Jeju Island. Jeju. Jeju Island. I I knew I was going to mess that up. Independent booksellers honored the novel by selecting it as an indie next pick, while Barnes & Noble chose a novel for its nationwide March 2019 book club. Missy is the New York Times bestselling author of The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, Snowflower, and The Secret Fan, Peony and Love, Shanghai Girls, China Dolls, and Dreams of Joy, which debuted at number one. She is also the author of On Gold Mountain, which tells the story of her Chinese-American family's settlement in Los Angeles. Her books have been published in 39 languages. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I uh, did a ton of research on you, and as I was reading your bio, you strike me as somebody who has an insanely busy schedule. So what I didn't mention in your introduction is, of course, you write books. You do a lot of speaking. I saw that you are a Los Angeles City Commissioner, and I'm guessing so much more than that. I, I know you've curated art exhibits at museums, all sorts of stuff. So to start out, I wanted to ask you, what is your secret? For, for those out there who, who they want to squeeze a little bit more in their day or they want to write more, what advice would you give them? Well, first for writers, you know, the writing always has to come first. 
uh, my mom, who was a writer, and also her father, my grandfather was a writer, and they always said that the writing has to come first. And there are a thousand bazillion reasons why and how we can decide not to do the work, which, you know, you could wash dishes sometimes is better than sitting down to write. So I think, you know, if you, if you think about writing like a thousand words a day, hopefully I can do that in a couple of hours. Um, that still leaves a lot of time. So really it's just, I really do think it's a matter of discipline and thinking about how you spend your time. I don't, go out to coffee shops and hang out with friends and I you know I don't think I'm the best friend in the world if I'm honest um, but I, I try to do the things that really mean something to me and um, I feel like I actually am finally retired from um, being a city commissioner after 13 and a half years but I filled up that time with other things so I, but I do think it's also important for writers to have other things that they do that get them out of the house if they work at home like I do or out of an office if they're lucky enough to have an office. Because, you know, as human beings, but also as writers, we're more than just words on the page. Mm. Can you keep going with that point when you say we're more than just words on the page? Well, what does that I mean, mean to you? I it means that you have to be living and having real experiences out in the world. And even something that seems like, oh, this would have nothing to do with a book about, you know, divers in South Korea, um, being on a board, for example, you see how people interact in a community of sorts. And um, how people have to work together, even if they don't like each other or are jealous or um, are just unpleasant. <laughs> and, 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 you know, as a writer, just myself, I'm not part of any other, I'm not really part of a big group where I'm hanging out with a lot of people or I'm forced to work with other people. And so that, that's just like one example. Um, and I have to say, like being on the city commission for so long, I learned so much that I actually was able to use in my writing about human dynamics, about, um, you know, this was not a terribly important commission, but, you know, political power and what that can do to a community and just all of those kinds of things that you can actually translate then back into your writing, or I was able to. Yeah, I, I think this is a really important point. I, I love that this is where we started because oftentimes, I know I personally have this feeling like all I should be doing with my time is write. And I should just be writing and writing and writing and not so much experiencing life, but just dedicated to the desk and the page in the name of progress of a project. And right, but I, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. It sounds like you're saying the opposite though. Is, is it what I'm hearing? Not that you shouldn't be dedicated to the desk, but that the tapestry of life is just as important. It's absolutely as important. And, you know, I don't know if you're a fearful person, but there's a lot about writing that's very scary. And not just the writing, but also, you know, going out and interviewing people or doing research or um, being out on book tour and all of those kinds of things that, at least for me, have been a challenge. And so I often tell writers who are starting out, 
you know, you go try just even once a week to do something you've never done before that, that stretches your, you know, kind of hits that button of like, oh, yeah. I'm a little nervous to do that. And, and then go do it because you, you know, quite apart from the writing, which takes a fair amount of courage, but you're also going to be out in the world, hopefully, with your project at some point, and you have to be building up that courage that way as well. Yeah. So you said a couple things that are those like eek moments for you. I think you said research, interviewing, um, Go, speaking. Oh speaking. my god, I was the. Sh- I mean, I was and still am a very shy person. I'm a true introvert. This is part of why I'm a writer. I get to sit in a room by myself. (laughs) And and so that idea of going out and speaking was really hard for me. And it, and it still is. I still get nervous. Um, I tell myself, I read something a year, a few years ago that, um, Broadway actors know that the show is going to be good if they get nervous. And mm. if they don't get nervous, it's going to be a terrible show. So then I, that's like, oh, okay, I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I, you know, it makes it, it's not my natural habitat. And yeah. um, I've really had to learn how to do that. And yeah it's, you know, it's, it's been a challenge, but it, I, I think I'm a pretty good speaker now, or <laughs> at least I'm told I am. So, um, yeah, what it, it, I can even about, like it to a certain extent now. Yeah. And I think I'm good at it, but it's, it's been a real journey for me to overcome my own shyness and sort of reticence about speaking in front of a, a large group of people. Yeah. When you, when we take on just something like shyness, as it ladders up to the broader idea of, you know, fear within the writing life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you just take shyness as it, you know, being manifest through not wanting to speak, what are the things you had to make peace with? I want to ask, or, or even um, the things you had, the, the stories about speaking that you had to change in order to take those next steps in order to do the thing you didn't want to do. And the reason I'm digging into this is because I think it's such a huge point of being like, I know I have a fear. I can see it. I've identified it, but I don't know how to move through it. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious of what that looked like for you. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I have to say for myself, it really was a process. I mean, when my first book came out and four people would come to an event, <laughs> that's like manageable sort of, <laughs> but But, uh, yeah, so I do think I sort of over time sort of got more and more used to bigger crowds. But I would say the number one thing for me has been, and I just sound so corny, is to just be myself. That I'm not pretending to be a New York Times bestselling author, you know, or or any of those things like even when you did the introduction I there's like I hear that and I think of that as being somebody else apart from me (laughs) but if I can just be as true to myself as I am and if I make a mistake or misspeak if I just acknowledge it to everybody and just you know like throw up my hands like oh well you know that's it's just me (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that that if I can do that then I'm I'm okay with myself, but it turns out people really like that. 
they like that I can be honest about it mm. and about honest about who I am. You know, I do think that for so many writers, there's a sort of level of pretension, you know, of, yes. well, here I am out on book tour and I'm right. going to read to you <laughs> and I'm going to read to you in my special <laughs> reading voice. And, and that just, you know, <laughs> you're channeling like, Oh yeah, you're channeling so many readings that I've been to. So like <laughs> exactly. I'm like I'm like trying not to laugh directly into the microphone as you said the reading voice. I appreciate that. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. Well, so actually, I don't do readings. I only talk, and that's because you know I can't remember what book it was. I never was very good at readings anyway. I just you know I didn't like going to them because of that sort of pretension. But also, I'm not an actor. You know, that's the reality. I'm not an actor. So I can't, there's some writers who are fantastic at reading their own work. I, you know, Min Jin Lee is somebody who mm -hmm. um, comes to mind, who is just fantastic. She's also fantastic just speaking, too. <laughs> so she's just, fan, we can say she's fantastic. She's fantastic, period, yeah. Yeah, but, but I'm not, I don't have that gift. And so... For me to to instead talk about what inspired me to write this, how I did the research, where I went, who I met, how this became a book, seems to me to be more, at least from my heart, as opposed to doing that sort of set reading. And let's face it, you know, people can go read the book themselves. They don't need me to read to them for 10, right. 20 minutes. Yeah, there's there's like an authenticity that you're that you're describing that um in an acceptance of your own humanity in a way that I think is really reassuring of you know this this writing world where you put on a certain presentation that looks like a book and you want people to like the book and you don't want to seem like you're you know incompetent as you write said book that also accepting that you are just a person right in this process has just as much value as well. Right. I, yeah. I really think that that's true. Yeah. So you said, um, I, I know I read in your bio too, that you come from a literary family. Um, you grew up around writers mm -hmm. and your parents, uh, your mother was a writer. Um, yes. when did you first have that light bulb go off and think to yourself, I think, I think I like this idea of telling stories. It's so funny that you said the word light bulb because that's, <laughs> that really did happen to me. So um, I, I really didn't want to be a writer. Uh, my mother um, started writing when there really weren't very many women writing. There weren't very many women journalists. Um, this was sort of in the late 60s, 70s. She was in California, one of the first. She was one of the first women novelists. I mean, the other one we think of is Joan Didion, but you know, Joan Didion published her first book and hightailed it straight to New York and stayed there all the way to today. Mm -hmm. So my mom, you know, she wrote about a dozen books and was a weekly book reviewer for the LA Times and then the Washington Post for 35 years. Uh, a, a, a book a week for 35 years. And so I, you know, I really, she really made her way from nothing. And she also taught writing. And so, you know, there's so many writers out there today who took her classes or she mentored. And 
it was it's just an incredible legacy and I'm very lucky to have to follow her but when I was young that was at the beginning of her career and she would sit on the couch and be on the phone with some editor you know in New York just crying as they just ripped her apart and they were very very cruel and um but she kept going but i mean i'm thinking like who would want to do that right i don't want to cry on the couch and then my her father was an old texas newspaper man and he had wanted you know like like many men had wanted to write the great american novel he didn't get to it and that's a whole other story until he was in his late 60s of how he finally found his true voice. But um, he also, I think, saw himself as a failure as a writer, even though he'd been a working writer his whole life. So that's sort of what I was growing up with. And, and people, you know, in Los Angeles, again, sort of feeling like they were out on the edge. It's not like today when people mm -hmm. want to read novels about, you know, the West and California and all of that stuff. Um, so I thought I didn't want to be a writer. Well, I also, there were some other things. I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have children. And I always wanted to live out of a suitcase. And I left college and I went to Europe. And this is back when you could bum around on $5 a day or less. And um, I just knew these certain things. I didn't want to be a writer. I didn't want to get married. Didn't want to have kids. Always wanted to live out of a suitcase. Of course, there's a little problem in there which is you have to earn a living to do that <laughs> and i kept thinking oh you know how am i going to make this happen how am i going to make this happen and there came a point i was living in greece and one and you know still this question all the time on my mind and one morning i woke up and it was truly like a light bulb went off it was like i could see it like in a light bulb as i woke up oh you could become a writer <laughs> And when I got home, it was about another six months. Um, within the first 48 hours, I had my first two magazine assignments. Wow. And I've been writing ever since. Now, of course, I really didn't know myself very well back then. I was only 20. And so, you know, I did get married. I do have children. I became a writer. I do spend a lot of time living out of a suitcase. And I can tell you that the bloom is way off that rose. <laughs> so... Uh, when did you, when did you start to think then from writing magazine articles, when did you start to think that you wanted to, to tell stories and write novels? Yeah. So actually, um, I, there was a point where I had a broken heart and I had to move home and my mother was living with this uh, man who, um, was also a writer and we actually, we were so broke it was a very hot summer. We were watching a terrible mini series on television because we couldn't go anywhere. And so I can't even remember who said it, but it was like somebody said, you know, one, we could do better than this. And so we actually wrote three books under the name of Monica Highland. And I really feel like that was the point where I started to become more of a fiction writer. But the other thing that happened, you know, but I didn't think I would ever do it on my own, you know, that I would go out and write books by myself. And um, I think really two things happened. One, I, I worked for Publishers Weekly for 13 years. I was the West Coast correspondent. And somewhere in there, I uh, met 
you know, I was going up to San Francisco a lot and covering the small publishers up there. And I met a woman named Ruth Ann Lummacun, who at that time was one of the only people writing about Chinese American history. And she called me at one point and asked if um, she could include my family in a book she was do working on about Chinese Ameri prominent Chinese American families. And I called my great aunt and asked if you know, we could participate. She was like, no, <laughs> no, we don't do things like that. And um, about two years later, when that book came out, I gave it to my great aunt for her 80th birthday. And the next day, her daughter called and said, you know, my mom realizes she made a mistake. So why don't you come over and we'll tell you some, she wants to tell you some stories. Uh -huh. And that's how On Gold Mountain started. But that was nonfiction. And then for the fiction, again, it was sort of this weird sort of confluence of things. So right as I had gotten to the end of On Gold Mountain, and, you know, it's 100 years of my you know, Chinese American history seen through the eyes of my family. And it had gone, you know, all the editing, it had gone to copy editing, it was really done. When my editor called and said, you know, I've been thinking, if I can give any advice today to other writers, if your editor ever calls and says, I've been thinking, hang up and leave town. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was like, well, I've been thinking. And, um, you know, whatever happened to the, to the book had ended in 1957, you know, what happened to everybody in your family? What's it like for Chinese immigrants today? And, oh, God, I just felt so awful when I got off the phone. I was just, I don't even know what to do. But I started making calls to the family. But also, very fortunately, there was a ship that had drifted into U.S. territorial waters off the coast of San Diego right then with um, about 400 illegal Chinese immigrants. And so that had happened. And then simultaneously, my husband had a case where he was representing the country of China in a, um, it was the first time that the FBI and the Ministry of Public Security, China's version of the FBI had ever worked together. And to this day, it's the only time that they've worked together. And so he was going back and forth. I was going with him. And there came this night when we were all in a karaoke bar in Beijing. And um, it was just like totally decadent place with these agents from the Ministry of Public Security. And this was right after Tiananmen. So Beijing was de deserted. And these guys, you know, they're drinking orange juice and cognac and smoking decadent foreign cigarettes, Marlboros, and getting up and singing in these gorgeous tenor voices uh, with tears coming down their cheeks and, you know, wearing their leather jackets and their weapons and all that stuff. And if you're a writer, there's only one thing you can think. This is the best material. Yeah, I was just I've thinking got that. It. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I took that ship that was off the coast of California and this experience uh, in the karaoke bar. And as I was walking home, because I, I went home or back to the hotel early, and I just thought, this is it. You know, this is something no one else has seen it. No one else has access. And that's, and then that really was my first novel by myself. Yeah. Man, that is so, it's such a uh, 
awesome story of like happy accidents coming mm-hmm. together, happy coincidences coming together. Um, it, as you look back and you think about growing up in a family who of writers and having a mother who was a, you know, a pioneer of um, women writing, what do you think is the the one like the biggest thing that you took from your mother on what it takes to be a, a working writer? A thousand words a day and one charming note. I get the thousand words a day. What's the charming note? So the charming note, and I think this is particularly important for people who don't live in and around New York, is that people in New York don't know you. They don't know us out there in the rest of the country. <laughs> they just don't, you know, you're not, you're not seeing them at a party and you're not going to lunch with them. And, and so, you know, for my mother, a lot of it was just a charming note that would be, I can remember like to the editor of Esquire or the editor of the Atlantic <clears throat> or whatever, but also to different editors that somehow she might've crossed paths with or she'd read a book that she liked and saw in the acknowledgments. Oh, you know, so I want to thank my editor, so-and-so. And then she would write to that person saying, I really love this book that you edited. I mean, all to other writers that she admired. Um, because if you don't have a community, how do you get into that community? Mm-hmm. And I, for me, you know, I, I still do write an awful lot of handwritten notes. Of course, now we also have email, but every event I do, I send an, a, I hand write a note to the bookstore, or the library, or whatever it is, to just thank them. And I can't tell you how many times um, people in bookstores, for example, have told me no one else in all the years we've been in businesses who sent a thank you note. And uh, you know. Writers have to be grateful for the to the people who help them, and who especially let them into their bookstores. Yeah, yeah. I I have a feeling um, there's going to be a little spike in handwritten notes coming out of you know the listenership of how writers write on the heels <laughs> on the heels of that. Um, you you also said something that that really piqued my interest. Um, I believe you were speaking about your. Um, father, grandfather, who came into writing later in life to write the next great American novel. And right. it, you, you, you use the term, you said, it took him a while to find his voice. Right. And um, we've been talking a lot, been talking to a lot of authors on the idea of like, what is voice? Because it's such an abstract term to a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what voice means to you and what does it mean then to find your voice? Okay, I'm not, can I do this as a two-part answer? For sure, absolutely, okay. yes. So for myself, um, I do hear a voice in my head for, for a, like, the, what, whoever the main character is, you know, whoever the point of view is. And I, and I have that voice in my head pretty early, and I really stick to it. But for me, that also requires putting on blinders in a sense. Like, I don't read any fiction when I'm writing. I know a lot of writers who read, you know, a novel every week, not me. I, I, I don't, I just can't. And maybe it's superstition, um, but I don't want someone else's voice to seep into my head, even inadvertently. I, 
I don't, you know, I'm usually writing about a different culture and a different time. I hope I would never write a sentence like this, but, <clears throat> you know, I can't write a sentence like, the feeling was electric if they've never had electricity. Um, with Snowflower and the Secret Fan, uh, I, I, there were so many places I wanted to use the word naive. Naive, we use it all the time but it's so clearly French. So if you're living in a very remote county in China in the mid 18th century, you would never have heard that word. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain kind of, like I said, blinders that I put on. Um, like I said, could be completely superstitious. Like, you know, the, the quarterback who says, I'm gonna wear the same jockstrap all season. You know, <laughs> that'll work. Maybe it does, I don't know, but I just know what is important to me. So with my grandfather, he, like I said, he'd been a Texas newspaper man. He tried to write novels, whatever. When he was 69, he was with his fifth wife. She had just had a baby. My mom and I went to visit. And my mom at that time, single mother, teaching part-time at UCLA, trying to write, but the way she was actually supporting us was by being a um, expert witness in pornography trials. Hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, there we were down at my grandfather's house. He was, my mom had this stack of books she had to read before she went back to trial, sitting in the middle of the kitchen table. And my grandfather was just so depressed. I mean, who wouldn't be? You know, you're 69, you've got a brand new baby. You're basically retired, no money coming in. And my mom was like, Dad, why don't you read? Daddy, she called him. Why don't you read one of these that might cheer you up? And so he took one and paddled off down the hallway. And he came back out and he was really happy and not for the reason you might expect. He said, <laughs> you know, I could write something better than this. And from that time until when he died, he wrote and published 75 hardcore pornographic novels. Wow. And they do say, write what you know. And that really was what he knew. You know, I mean, he really, he'd gotten around in life and um, he was able to support his family. Wow. That, um, that was, that's such like a, a twist on the story. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> So um, you've been writing for practically your whole life, um, it sounds like, since you grew up in a writing household and then started writing at 20 and then, you know, started writing novels and have been writing for so long. And this is one of those impossible questions, but, you know, if you had to think about bubbling up a couple of the, I want to say like best practices, like your North Stars, the things that have, you know, you've gone back to over and over and over again to either get get you back on track or to, um, or to just, just guide your way in the writing life, what would those things be? Okay, I'm going to give you three. The first is to write a thousand words a day, five days a week. And, you know, sometimes that takes me two hours. Sometimes it takes me eight or 10. If it takes me eight or 10. I know it's not very good, but I can fix it later. But the thing to remember is you can't wait for the muse to come. You know, the muse is busy. She's got other things to do. She's not going to come and visit me. Mm. And she's not going to come and visit you either. You know, you, they're just other things. And if you can't do a thousand words a day, which after five days is 
a 20 pages, a chapter, you could do 500 words a day. I mean, after a week, you'd have 10 pages. After two weeks, you have a chapter. The next thing is um, you have to be really passionate about what you're writing. I think of this, it's, it's um, how do I put it? I think sometimes people think, oh, this is like my get rich scheme. Mm. Um, the, it's that just that's not a it's not a get rich scheme it just really isn't and if you're passionate of, and, and you know you know writing has its ups and downs it has the days that go well it has the days that go badly you have editors who like your work editors who hate it you have Critics who like it, critics who hate it, readers who like it, readers who don't like it, things that are outside our control um, that, that can affect the sales of a book. So all these things that have their ups and downs. And so I look at this as like a long-term relationship that I'm in it for life. It's like a marriage as opposed to a one-night stand. Mm-hmm. And that way you can, I think you can, help yourself roll with the punches a little bit better and take a longer view. Um, I, uh, when I finished uh, Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, I actually, I took a little time off for the first time, really. And I pulled out all the ideas that I've had, 29 of them sitting around in my office. And I, and I wanted to narrow it down to five, and I did. And I started writing these, you know, sort of like seven pages for each one. By the time I'd done three of them, three. By the time I'd written all five of them, three of them I no longer wanted to do. I was like, I don't want to live with this for two years. You know, so I think that there are things that you can do that can help you really be aware of how passionate you are about something, mm-hmm. and that really that passion carries you through. And then the last thing is really about editing. And nobody likes to be edited. It's, you know, nobody likes it. Um, And I've had good editors and I've had some really horrible ones. But what I try to do is divide it into thirds. So a third of the time, they're right. A third of the time, they're just wrong. They just read it wrong. And a third of the time, you have to stop and look and think about what, what they're marking. And what, what I have found is that often in that third, it's a place in the manuscript where I've been uneasy, where I've been hoping, like, I hope no one catches this part, that it's not really working. But somebody does. And so then you can really work on that together. But, you know, I, I think our general response to editing is like, go away and leave me alone. I like it how it is. And I wrote it this way, you know, for a reason. But, you know, that's what they're there for, is to help you bring out the story that you really want to tell. It's just ugh, Yeah, I, I love that third. The, the one third I was thinking about, you know, reading groups and workshops and just readers in general that I've had. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about, man, like I, that ratio seems to apply perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, one third of the time, what they say, I just totally missed. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, yo, I am really happy that you pointed that out to me. 
one third of the time, it's like, that is just not the point that I'm going here. Thank you. And then you're right that people always seem to call out like a good reader, a good editor calls out parts of the manuscript of the project where you are like trying to get one past, you know what I mean? You're trying to get like a freebie. Um, I love that. Or you're Um, onto something, but you just haven't quite figured it out. You know, you're trying to say something, you just haven't figured out how to say it or say what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way. I I like that as like, you're on like a a path. You just maybe haven't gotten to the end of that path yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the right editor will ask you the question where you can have, you know, hopefully ask you in the right way so that you say, well, this is what I meant. (laughs) Oh, now it's clear to me. Um, Sometimes it takes a lot longer (laughs) to get to that clear. (laughs) Right. So um, I want to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. So I've got a couple here about your writing life and your writing process uh, that we will just just bang through uh, relatively quickly. So do you write by hand? Do you use a computer like Microsoft Word, Scrivener? Okay. So you are a word. I'm a word person. Okay. Are you a pantser or are you a plotter uh, or something in between plotter, I, should, I, should plotter. Say. I do okay. plot i do, plot, do plot but sometimes people do things i didn't expect them to do right do you listen to music or do you prefer silence i listen to music without words okay do you have a, a favorite artist or album that comes to mind i have uh there actually about five that are on continuous rotation for about the last 10 years one is puccini without words i also have um the bach bach and uh, the glenn gould and then um i have a, a cd of music from mali and then i'm sure there are a couple of other ones but they're just right in a little stack that i can just you know, not even think about and pop them in. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last question in the rapid fire round is when you get royally stuck on a character or scene, chapter, whatever it might be, what is your like, you know, three-step process to get unstuck? My three-step process is to sleep. <laughs> and sleep and sleep hmm. and tell myself when I go to sleep, here's the question, here's where I'm stuck, how am I going to solve it? And I try and I give myself about three days and usually somewhere in, you know, one of those mornings when I wake up, it's that light bulb again, it kind of comes clear to me. And it's like, how could I have not thought of that? But, you know, just to, I'd like to say I thought this up myself, but I just read that book about why called Why We Sleep. Yeah. And one of the things is in there is to pose a question to yourself that you haven't been able to solve uh, during your awake time, and that this is actually a thing that that works. And I, you know, I try not to worry. That's the main one. So you know, as I have to try not to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> And so I do find that it's like when I'm on a walk, if I'm driving, or if I'm sleeping, that something will solve itself. Oh, I love when I'm that. not thinking. When I'm not thinking about. Yeah, it. like the your subconscious. Mm-hmm. Just let my subconscious yeah. do its thing. It's like chewing on it. Yeah. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, I love that. Okay, so we have come to the part of the interview 
where I will ask you the final four questions. And I ask these exact same questions to every single guest on the podcast. I absolutely love this because I get such varied answers. And it's just, it's just fun to have consistent questions in the interview and hearing all the, the just myriad of, of different ways that people write. And I think it highlights a big part of the idea of the show, which is everyone has their own style. They have their own process. You know, everyone writes in their own way. So with that said, I shall ask you the first question, which is, if you had to pick a spirit book, so this is like what your spirit animal would be if it were in book form. Basically, if you were to be reincarnated as a book, what book would that be? Children's book called Amelia Ran and the Magic Ring. Okay, I have to dig into that. I'm not supposed to do this, but it's my show, so I'm going to do it. Um, what What is it about that children's book that sticks out to you? So I loved this book when I was a kid, and then my sister lost it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, this was like a big grudge for a long time because I loved that book. And on my 50th birthday, you know, she gave it to me. And as I was unwrapping it, and I just saw the back cover, just the red cover, I knew exactly what it was. And I started to weep. And then we were with my mom, she was still alive. And she started reading it to us at at lunch. Mm. And what really struck all three of us was how much what Amelia Ann does in that story, um, that there were that actually, there's a lot in my approach to life that is like how Amelia Ann acts. Hmm. I will have to like look up this. You'll, it'll be really hard yeah. to find because there are only 3,000 copies okay. published way back in like the 20s. My grandmother bought this at a thrift shop. How oh it my. even got here in this country, nobody knows. But And then my sister found that other one. It was amazing. Oh my, okay. Maybe I'll like see if Google has it scanned. Yeah. Maybe. Again. Okay. Question number two. Is there a specific tool, can be anything at all, that you absolutely must have to write? No. A specific tool? Like what? Like a pencil or, you know, piece of software, a chair, tea, anything. Oh, well, that tea, is... tea, 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 tea. Okay. Tea, yeah, is, tea. tea is the tool. And, it, and yeah, and I'm... And I'm very, I, when I started writing uh, Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, I was, you know, I love tea, but by the end of that book, I became a total tea snob. So I drink mm. really, really fine teas when I'm working. And what is your like go-to tea if you were to? I actually have three. Okay. I, one is pu'er, but within pu'er, you can go from a raw to a, a you know, one that's 50 years aged or from a single thousand year old tree or you know so there's so much variation in there i also like iron goddess of mercy which i get from one person in china and then there's also um true jasmine tea and Mm. you know all the jasmine tea we get here is just black tea with jasmine oils sprayed on it but i get real the real the real jasmine tea which is uh, takes uh, is very hard to make and time consuming and expensive and rare. Oh man, I feel like there's a whole other podcast just on tea. <laughs> just on tea. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Question number three, and we've kind of touched on this, but I would love to hear th- this this question answered directly from you. Which is, how do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? 
long silence. <laughs> I mean, that's, I feel like that's, we've been talking a lot about yeah. that today, right? And I, yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I wish I, I just think you have to take the long view and know that it might get worse before it gets better, that it could get better before it gets a lot worse. <laughs> But if you, you know, again, if you think of it like a marriage, that you're in this for the long haul, that that, that is, at least for me, that's the thing that gets me through those moments where I think, I don't want to do this anymore. This is going to be my last book. I'm, I'm never going out on tour again. I don't want to work with that editor again. Whatever it is, those bumps along the road, they're, you know, I don't want to diminish them. They're really hard. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter at what level you're at. They're, they're still out there. And so, um, yeah, I just think you have to try for the long view. Of course, in the moment, the long view is always difficult. Yeah. Yep. Okay. The last question is, if you could give one piece of advice to all the new writers out there who are listening to this podcast, what would that be? I just have to go, I have to go back to the tried and true, the top three to write a thousand words a day. Yeah. If you can't do that, do the 500. Um, a charming note doesn't hurt. And also, again, to really be passionate about what you're doing, because if you have that passion, again, that's going to get you through those ups and downs. And it will make you feel like you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. That is such great, wonderful advice to wrap up the podcast on Lisa. Thank you so much. I have, I could just listen to you talk all day. I feel like, I feel like my brain is kind of spinning right now. I have so many things I want to think about that you discussed. And, um, I, I have so many things I'd want to add. So we'll, maybe in a year we'll do it again. It'll yeah. be part two. Yeah. Part, part, part two. We'll do this all over again with your next book release, but I so deeply appreciate your time and sharing your wisdom. Uh, thank you so, so, so much for connecting with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So um, we just ended the interview and Lisa and I continued talking and she started to, to discuss um, an experience with a book and having to push through other people saying like, listen, this isn't going to work out. And I said, I absolutely have to record this. So we're going to do an addendum <laughs> to, the, to the original recording and so, Lisa, I would love to hear this story and would love to hear you share uh, how you push through kind of people saying, don't write the story, no one's going to read it. Okay. So, uh, this was, it has to do with Snowflower and a Secret Fan. And up until that point, I had been writing, I'd written on Gold Mountain, I had the mysteries, and I was what they call a critically acclaimed author, meaning you know, I got nice reviews, but nobody read my books. And so now I was starting on this historical novel that it has to do with these two women in this very remote county in China who communicate through this secret writing system. And everybody said to me, nobody's going to read this book. My agent, my mother, other writers, my publisher, everyone was like, nobody's going to read this book. But okay, why don't you just go ahead with what nobody's going to read it. And that actually was really freeing to me in a way that I just thought, well, I'm just going to write what I want. I'm not, I'm not going to worry about the fact that nobody's going to read it. And I did know how many people read my, my mysteries. And I, you know, it was a fair number of people. And I thought, well, 
okay, I know I can't get close to that, but maybe 5,000 people will find this book and they'll be the right 5,000 people. So I just kept writing and, you know, it turned out that everyone was wrong. And that's the book that went on to sell to 39 countries. Mm. And what did it take for you to push through all of those people saying no one is going to read this? That, I mean, especially from like the people close to you. That's a hard because thing. With yeah. that book, I was just completely obsessed I, it was a subject that I had stumbled on and it stuck with me. And, you know, when other people have free time, I don't know what they do. You know, I don't know what other people do, but I, I would go to the research library at UCLA to see what I could find very little. I would look online back then to see what I could find almost nothing. Uh, two things was, was it on the entire internet. I, but everything I found just instead of calming my obsession fed it until one day I said to my husband, you know, there's only one thing I can do. I have to go to this really remote County and, and see what I can see. And I wow. was only the second foreigner ever to go there. Um, and it was, you know, really an intense, but amazing trip. But I, I just, like, I remember coming back, out of China and I had one night in the city of Guilin. It's a beautiful tourist city and I sta stayed in a nice hotel and they had, you know, hot water and room service and stuff like that. And I, I just had this voice in my head that was so strong. And it was a little bit of my grandmother, a little bit of my great aunt, a little bit of Yang Wangying, who was the, at that time, the world's oldest living Nushu writer, the secret language writing writer who I had just interviewed at age 96 and she died three months later. Wow. Um, but it was so strong that I pulled out my laptop and wrote what would become the first chapter. Wow. So, so driven by pages. obsession. Yeah. Driven yeah. by obsession. And, and I didn't know yeah. that this was going to be a book. I really didn't. I was just obsessed. Mm. <clears throat> mm. I love it. And, and then everything that was in that first four pages, Although I hadn't known it was going to be a book thematically, everything was in there. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I mean, my, my takeaway as I hear you say that is, um, you know, obviously there's, there's um, it sounds cliche, but I found there's a lot of truth in cliches, which is like, you know, when, when there's a story that's on your heart and it's, and it's turning into obsession, there, there's a reason for it to be there and it wants to come out. Mm -hmm. And and there's a, I don't want to get too woo woo. Like I don't want to get too far out there, but it's almost the more I hear these stories, the more I interview authors and, and chop this up, it's almost like there's a purpose to that story coming out. It might just be to that person, right? It might right. just, just be to the writer. Right. Or it could be that that story has a place in the world that it needs to take, but it's almost like there's this leap of faith combined with obsession that leads to something really magical. Yeah. And I just yeah. want to say two things about that. On the one hand, you know, I, I mean, this is why, how we've discovered new writers. I was not, this was not my first book. It was my fifth, but we see that, you know, every couple of years, a book that comes out of nowhere, I think where the crawdads sing right now, you know, that's been yeah. so huge. And, yeah. you know, that had a very small first printing. No one was expecting anything from it. And here we are more than a year later. And 
when I read it, I just felt like, well, this is something fresh and it's new and I haven't read it before. Yeah. So that's one that, that that happens. There are also so many writers who are writing something that's beautiful and unique and special, but just won't find the, you know, just doesn't, whatever the, the universe doesn't line up mm-hmm. in a way that that book it finds its readership, but that doesn't take away from, from right. how good it is. And that's right. why when I had that in my mind about the 5,000, you know, that's something even today, I still, when I write, I really try not to think about the audience, to just think about the story that I want to tell and hope that readers will come along with me, you know, come along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And then just really last, and then we have to move on. Otherwise, it's really is the second podcast. I know. I'm like, I'm like, how much time do you have? Do you want to just keep on going? We'll just do another hour of <laughs> kidding. Um, the other thing. What was the other thing? Let's see. I now I forgot it. So maybe we now, now yeah. maybe now it's um, the spirit has left us. Oh, I know. So often writers will say, "Well, how do you write a best-selling novel?" I mean, if I knew that. The answer to that, I would do it every single time. Right. <laughs> you know, we, nobody knows the answer to that. I mean, I right. think there are certain things like, okay, we all want to read the new Michael Connolly, or, you know, we all want to read whatever Margaret Atwood writes. But, and there, you know, there's certain people who, you know, J.K. Rowling, okay, you know, right. there, there, there's certain categories of, of writers that, you know, are huge and have a built-in readership forever. But if people really could figure out, and that doesn't mean that all of those books should be bestsellers. They just have that built-in readership and a whole, you know, industry behind them that wants to make money. So um, there is no secret, I don't think, but, but I know that there are stories out there that are special that hopefully find their audience. And even if it's just the 5,000, that is your true right audience. Yeah. Uh, That's another wonderful way to wrap this up, man. I am so filled up and I feel like the listeners of this podcast are going to be scribbling notes this entire time from all the, I mean like this, it's so grateful for all that you've shared. Well, thank you again. And with us, yeah. So thank you again for the second time. And I so deeply appreciate your time and for appearing on this podcast. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you again to Lisa for her time. Remember to go sign up for the online readings, www.howwriterswrite.com slash online reading. These are going to be such fun events. I cannot wait to get started. Also, if you haven't yet, please go give us a rating and review on iTunes. It takes just one second and it makes a huge difference on the people who find us and their confidence in starting to listen helps us get our message out. Thank you again, listeners, for all of your time. And thank you to PIM Media for producing this episode. I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.